and welcome to the Dicer Screaming Podcast. <laughs> now with added screaming. Hey, I'm Randy. <laughs> I'm Mike. And together we form the gestalt of the two-headed literary etin of gaming podcasts. Oh, Prisha. <laughs> we are not that. Uh, you do us too much kindness. We are but the poorly disguised assassin of gaming podcasts. Like, we didn't even try. It's oh. just like the little fake mustache with the glasses. <laughs> <laughs> and we got a we got a different hat today. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not who you think. <laughs> Dude, we literally just adventured with you for like six weeks. We know it's you. Oh. <laughs> Uh, we know we should have tried harder, but it was the best costume we did come up with. Yeah, but hey, uh, <laughs> we'll take we'll take our hits as well as the acclaim. So, yeah, um, talking about things. Uh, last, it's been a week since we lasted a podcast, so we had a little lapse again. Life has been busy for both of us, so that's just a thing that we have to deal with. Oh, especially me. I, I had to jaunt all the way to the Upper Peninsula and back. Uh, this was not a leisurely fun trip where i got to like hang out and kayak uh this was you know dash up there retrieve a family member and return them to battle creek so yeah hasn't been easy but all is well so happy to be back yeah and so we got some good topic for you today we're going to discuss rings of power yeah as promised the mckeomancer was not wrong so the mckeomancer is still around yeah keeping him in business and uh, speaking of what well, we're talking about, Mercaeomancer, what looms in our future? Okay. All right. Time for the Mercaeomancer to gaze into swords or knives. Either will do. Any bladed uh, instrument? Yeah. Divination by blade. And I see in our near future a discussion, a meta topic, glance at old TSR. Uh, the kind of a pan back panoramic view of the wide variety of amazing games, uh, not an examination of them individually per se, as an examination of TSR's wide reach at that time period, like the, the enormous well of creativity that they were drawing on at that time. And in some ways, I think what we're trying to do here is encourage that atmosphere to come back well yeah a lot of these games have made reappearances and uh, have had homages i mean and there's some others that definitely need them yes they need a, a, re, a re-examination ideas. i think is uh, yeah appropriate yeah and um so we'll talk about that we'll talk about the clones but uh, also jason uh, gave us a call in we skipped Ooh. one so we're just going to let that one slide sorry jason but we're going to get into one where uh you take us to task about Warhammer Fantasy role-playing. Yeah. So we're going to be right back with that, so stick around. Take it away, Jason. Hey, guys. Jason here. Sorry for the late call. Warhammer Fantasy role-playing is a great game. I first got into it in the 90s with some friends in Washington State. Really, really enjoyed it. Still greatly... Um, that can't talk. I, I, I still greatly prefer first edition, to be honest. It's not perfect. I've looked over second edition and very quickly at fourth I've heard some not so great things about fourth, to be honest, they've made some changes. I most like to make changes sake, you know, but 
first edition still has a special place. It's, a, you know, has some flaws in it, but it just has a lot of character. And that's what's important. Uh, a big part of that, though, is that my favorite dungeon crawl board game is Warhammer Quest from the 90s. I, I still have, actually, I have two copies of that. I'm working on making new pieces for it because the old pieces are getting old, but great, great game. Okay, keep up the great work. All right. Hey, thanks a lot for calling in, Jason. Sorry to skip your uh, previous episode where you were talking about our D&D 1, 1s and 20s. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, we, we're making sure to get you on this one. Yeah, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Yeah, I really, uh, I think I'm one of the outliers. I like 3rd Edition Warhammer. I liked it. It was a lot of fun for me to play. I have a romantic addiction to the very first edition that yeah. has made, like, I, I'm not saying I'm hostile to playing in any of the other editions. Like, honestly, I'll take my Warhammer where I can get it. Uh, but, I mean, if you were asking where the true love lies, it's got to lie with the first. Because there, oh, was, yeah, a, there was a thing that happened, like, at that moment, that time and place, uh, that literally changed the way I perceived what a good game could be and what it could include. Okay, that that encounter with the original first edition of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, I think that actually shaped me both as a player and a DM and a creative, like, uh, across the board. It was one of those impact moments where, like, I've never gotten over that. I was like, oh, yeah, man, if I, anything I do should at least try to have some elements of that because it's just too cool to not be included. And yeah, that is how hung up on first edition uh, Warhammer Fantasy roleplay I really got. Yeah, I, I think we really need to take, um, I think I need to take a dive and just get uh, Jouihander just as a, uh, I think I take my money from uh, uh, Morkboard and uh, put that in towards a copy of Jouihander. I really like that. And I think you would really groove on that too. They really captured that feel perfectly. I mean, with no apologies. I mean, they just... <laughs> <laughs> brutality is oh, about yeah, to unfold. Just, yeah, and, and brung it up to modern sensibilities. Fear the sharpened stick. Yeah, feel. Fear <laughs> the rat crack, rat catcher. Alright, so yeah, thanks a lot, Jason. We really appreciate it, and good luck on your Warhammer quest. Um, getting some stuff, I think, with the uh, printable 3D uh, models that are becoming available. I think you can quite easily get uh, yourself a very good copy, again, of that game. Yeah. That, it Without having it, to pay an arm and a leg. Makes it a lot easier to get replacement parts. Yeah. I, I love some of the benefits that technology has given us in this era. Uh, you know, replacing things that are, frankly, no longer made. You know, you really have to come up with a way to cheaply custom build them. And we can totally do that now. That's, yeah. <laughs> My level of nerd excitement over that, like the possibilities, uh, is I'm pretty jazzed. So. Yeah. So, yeah, keep coming. Uh, good hearing from you, bud. So, all right. Well, let's stare into it. We uh, talked about Rings of Power, and here we are delivering it. I think um, we've both seen the fifth episode. So far, we're up into it. And uh, I've had some reservations going in. I was kind of a wait-and-see kind of guy. But uh, I'm going to say that a lot of people's reaction has dumbfounded me. To this whole series and after having now been five episodes in i'm not really sure what the fuss is about all right if you'll let me go for just a moment i yeah. might run a little you bit got, long on this you uh, got as much room as you need my friend take okay. it away first impressions uh, 
before I even watched a thing, I understood that this was material drawn from the Silmarillion. Uh, and look, I'm going to be incredibly candid. I am nowhere near Stephen Colbert on knowledge of the Silmarillion. Why? Because in my attempts to read it and make sense of it, I found it incredibly dull. And this brings me to the big point. When they were structuring this to make a show that brings to life segments of the Silmarillion, I understood right from the outset that they were going to have to radically alter. There were, go there were going to be things that were going to be written in that would make it possible for human beings to watch this and connect to the characters within. Because so much, so much in the Silmarillion, uh, there's, there's nothing outside the bare bones, the, the precise facts, the times and dates, the, the challenges undertaken for these specific persons. There's no background for them. There's no connection to the, like, oh, and he had a difficult time with his best friend during that particular week, just before he went off and did this incredibly heroic thing. It was impossible to make a show of the Silmarillion, or so I thought. But what they have done here has been incredibly impressive. One, it has the atmospheric appearance of the Jackson movies, okay? That the qualities in the way it is produced, uh, the way uh, everyone is garbed and appears and carries themselves and speaks, uh, it is reminiscent of the Jackson material, which we, I think, all rightly love so much. And then, despite what some people considerable, consider the horrible crime of adding things that were not originally there, um, it's like, I don't think you fully understand just how necessary this is. You know, like, it's one thing to gripe about it. It's another thing to not understand why they've done this. Uh, I admit, that's a risky gambit. Adding a bunch of stuff that was not there in the original texts, you're taking a risk. But I like what they did and how they did it. In the, in the final examination, as I got in episode after episode, like even I, with my amateur status on Tolkien, was going, you know, like, well, I don't remember any of this. Uh, you know, they've sure filled in a whole lot of blanks. But I like it. I mean, I had a great time. I was like, oh, well, you know, I totally see how it's possible to connect to these characters uh, and to vest yourself in what is taking place and to enjoy it. Uh, and that would not have been possible had they not made these structural alterations. I don't think it would have been a good show if they had not done what they did. Uh, Plus, they're not doing the entire Silmarillion. So people who are looking for key elements from way over here, way over there, you may be disappointed. But you will, if you have a degree of familiarity with the Silmarillion, you'll catch the big picture. You know, you'll, you'll recognize the core points that like, okay, this places us roughly in this series of events. And they have compressed time which sadly was absolutely essential because again, mm -hmm. like I said, this could not have been done had they not made these uh, structural alterations. You couldn't tell this story in any 
comfortable, linear fashion that people could connect to any other way. Couldn't be done. I, I Literally, all you could do at this point is hire Stephen Colbert to uh, sit in a chair and narrate the entire story of the Silmarillion. Uh, and it, there would be no visuals, you know, <laughs> like maybe some little flash sequences where, oh, vaguely, you know, uh, armored forms fighting one another. Where you would close the book and talk about a sidebar. Yeah. You know, stick a pin in it sort of thing. So that's, that is Mike's hot take that I don't think it could have been done any better than this. I accept that the things that are like structurally flawed in terms of time compression and like altered events and additional characters that were not referenced. You know what? I still like it. I still like it a lot. Fun to watch, engaging, and that is not what I was expecting from it. I didn't expect it to make me connect to it in any meaningful way. Right. I kind of thought, and I'm going to be candid as well, based on the early reviews that came out, that I was going to be watching a fantasy narration of critical race theory. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, if you listen to certain segments of the internet, yeah, that, that's everything. <laughs> I, I mean... <laughs> I don't. I don't get that. I, I get under. I can understand how people can be upset that it's not a perfect rendition of the Similarian. I can even understand and sympathize with the fact that Galadriel is not being portrayed as painfully as she could have been taken directly out of the Similarian. But again, the name of the show is Rings of Power, not the Similarian. And I think that's one of the big things is that they're pulling a lot from the Similarian, but they're also pulling from the Lost Tales of Christopher Tolkien and some others that have been written in. The idea of Elrond and uh, Durin's folk, uh, the rift between the elves and the dwarves that was healed with Elrond's help, where he was both elf friend and dwarf friend. You know, those two people, you know, Durin's folk were elf friend. Well, and it's an extremely enjoyable segment. Uh, I I like that, the, the awkwardness between them. Right, uh, and... The subterfuge, the political intrigue, uh, and the at least a nod to the structural differences in the way their peoples react to events. I like the the elves having an incredibly long lived uh, or long lived uh, uh, existence. So uh, the dwarves. Uh, how, how do I put this? Um, hmm. There are certain sentiments that they can never exactly share with one another. They, they're never going to see the same event precisely the same way because one is looking at it across this incredibly long timeline and the other, you know, these are urgent things that must be addressed. Right. Not like not being there for his marriage, his, yeah. uh, the birth of his children, Did which he... now mind you, that was subterfuge to like cover up that like, Oh, I think you're here to sniff around, you know, sniff around and find out what's up with our, our new mining. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which as it turns out, they delve too deep. Yeah. We're building to that. I can feel it coming, man. Uh, it's a, I, 
I feel like they've spent a few episodes laying a lot of groundwork and you're really like the, the doors are just about to open. A lot is about mm. to explode at the same time. Yeah. And it's still a process, which uh, spoiler alert, we're not going to give many spoilers here. No, if there is not much, we're going to deal in the specifics as much as we are the generalities of a lot of the reactions and the specifics of how things have come to change between the Similarian and the Rings of Power TV show, which I think, for the most part, is the only way you could have done this. I there is no way you could have done the Similarian as a movie, even given his you know yeah. three hour a trilogy to each, maybe to the first age, the or excuse me, the pre age, which would have been more or less a rendition of a fantasy version of the Bible. But yeah, you could do some you could animation do some Genesis. CGI stuff in the background while the narrator continually narrates. I mean, and like you still you could do that with the first stuff. age because there's not a lot happening, and then you could go through the first age, the rise of Morgoth, uh, the first uh, the war for the Cimmerals, and uh, the subsequent uh, the new the falling of Numenor, which was pretty much glossed over in this, uh, which was interesting take on my part because I felt like oh, you know, there's a lot going on here but we haven't seen the last of it so I, I'm kind of uh, loath to pass full judgment but I wonder how long this series will go that is another thing as well that uh, will, it, will it be seasonal you know will, will we be seeing like four or five seasons of this or is it going to be just one telling it one and done well I have to imagine that unless they are tragically cancelled uh, which would be a travesty because they've done a beautiful job so far. Uh, I would imagine that this is going to be multi-seasonal. Yes. I, I don't think you can, I, I think when they pitched it originally, like I'm guessing here, because like I, was, yeah, I wasn't in that room, but when you pitched an idea like this, you would be in the position of having to say, this is like, we have to go into this understanding that it's multi-seasonal unless you want to do a single 36 episode season. Right. Uh, so I have no idea what the, I, I don't even know what the slate for scheduled episodes for one season is. I mean, is it six? Is it eight? Is it 12? You don't know anymore. Because in this era, it could be freaking anything. Yeah. You could right. be just eight and, oh, there's going to be a cliffhanger. And then three months later, we're going to have the next eight installments. Yeah. It could be anything at this point. So I, I literally just... You know, I accept what is available to me as it happens. Um, I, you know, people got hung up on the weirdest things about this. Yeah, that that's what I, I was saying is, you know, based on... I like that you mentioned people who expected this to be the entire Silmarillion. And it's just a ludicrous uh, proposition that. Yeah, you could. No, I don't think you could do it in a in a in a trilogy movie. So setting. it literally, like out of the gate, it's explained already. I mean, you should really have a full grasp that this is going to be a precise series of events related around the Rings of Power and the impact they had in the prehistory to the Lord of the Rings. Uh, that like the buildup is coming. The Rings of Power are going to show up. This is how that. Yeah, you're going to see Sauron in this, and you're not going to see Sauron in the way you've seen him in the movies. Correct. He is the fair one. He is also the deceiver and the gift bringer. Yeah. Does that sound like somebody? I know Token disliked, Professor Token disliked allegory, but it's hard to escape <laughs> when he directly painted Sauron 
as the deceiver, the ones who uh, deceived the Numenorians, who deceived the elves and tricked them into and uh, making the rings of power. That he was a crafter, he was a powerful magician, and with that craft, the elves thought that they could, in their hubris, harness his knowledge of the creation of the world and the forging of the Simrals in a way that could benefit them. Yeah. Without a price. But there would be no <laughs> price to this. Yeah. No, this is totally going to work out. I see I see literally no way in which this could possibly bite us in the ass. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Way to go, Nightmares. Uh. Oh, yeah. I did like that, that. You know, we got an insult right off the gate, you know, when, uh, about how humans think about elves, calling them Nightmares. Well, yeah, one of the things they've done is they've highlighted an enmity between humanity and elves, the, the humans that once served uh, Morgoth. Morgoth and, you know, were in allegiance with dark powers. Uh, and, you know, they're constantly tempted by that again at any time. You know, like you, the elves have a sort of aloof disdain for them, but keep an eye on them just the same. Just wondering, you know, like another... The Morgoth Club gonna rise up. Just you know, just keeping one eye open on you, and the enmity that results from that—that that, like if you're literally judged guilty from birth, uh, you know, there's a simmering mm. resentment and anger. That's true. Uh, so yeah, there, there's a lot I of subtlety. That. I like the um, what is that actor's name? The one who plays the elf uh, warden, the one of the Elven Rangers. Uh, yeah, he was a great casting choice. I mean, like that guy's like facial symmetry is almost hypnotic. Okay, that guy like should be in like one of those art classes where like they they teach classical art studies and you, like you get that perfect symmetry as you're preparing the canvas and you know that guy. Oh man! Yeah, what is he has a very stoic look to him, and. Um... Ismail Cruz Cordova. Ah. As Arendir. Yeah, great casting choices. Honestly, I haven't seen any terrible casting choices in this. Uh, yeah. Um, people have gone after it with zest and aplomb. Uh, I, I particularly enjoyed uh, Young Isildur. Uh, yeah. Although it's very off-putting because... You know, I mean, canonically, Isildur, like, you don't get a lot of, like, youthful background info on Isildur. It doesn't exist in the Silmarillion. So they've, you know, created a character whole cloth here, where they, they have woven more background for him than would have existed normally. And, you know, he's a conflicted character who, you know, has not lived up to his potential and is hungry to do so. And you're getting a like little window into, you know, here is the guy who ultimately, well, you know, uh, 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 interacts with a ring of power. Uh, yeah, they, you know, also putting in here the how I don't want to give too much away. I'm right, right, right. Just We're, we we want to talk about, but his portrayal of a elf torn between two worlds. Oh, yeah, Ismail uh, Cruz. Yes. Uh, Cordoba. Uh, yeah, his sense of conflictedness about having, you know, spent a lengthy period of time uh, associating with humans uh, and instead of viewing them uh, through the 
you know, lens of hostility uh, and disregard, you know, he's become slowly connected to their day-to-day struggles. He knows that there are decent people who are trying as hard as they can uh, to do the right thing. You know, that, that humanity is essentially exactly that. You know, they're, they're just on a scale where, uh, you know, some good, some bad. Uh, and some days, uh, the only difference is what situation do you throw somebody into? Right. And we're not going to see the fall of Numenor until Sauron achieves a certain level of power here. Yeah. And that's a big thing. Now, we did just uh, doing a a really good era. Yeah, they did. And this is is one that they're really, they're speeding up the timeline. Obviously, Gladiel never met Isildur that way. But this is a great way to put it into play. And it kind of left me a little... um, gobsmacked that they would do that and i just said you know what quit trying to conflate the two together this is a story that's being told in the style of the similarian with some of the principal characters now uh, apparently as i moved down this discovered this just in uh, thank you walter crockett um that there is going to be two seasons. This first one is only going to be eight seasons and it's expected eight to eight re- episodes eight, eight, eight episodes i'm sorry I misspoke, thank you. Uh, it's going to wrap up in October. So uh, we'll see the eighth episode there. And they've already started filming for the second season. Okay. So, so we'll uh, get that uh, sometime soon, I suppose. But uh, We got three more episodes this year. And then possibly, uh, I would think, like either the end of 2023 or like the beginning or mid 2024 we'll we'll be looking at the rest of this yeah ambitious undertaking but these are full hour episodes you like these are not like rinky dink 30 minute you know uh, we had to make room for like 2.5 hours worth of advertising Uh, no these are these are big chunky episodes they are wonderfully dense you know, and one of the things that I've heard is like they're misbetraying Gladriel because she should be married and having children now. And Token himself went to great lengths to display that uh, early Galadriel was a woman of almost Amazonian disposition. That she was filled with rage and hatred for Morgoth and his lieutenant Sauron. Yeah. For bringing death to the elves. She was there when it began. And for her, this was a insult. It was a grievous, almost unforgivable sin for him to do, for Morgoth to turn not only against the crater, but also to bring such destruction to Middle-earth for no other reason than his own hubris, to remake the world in his own vision of yeah. what should be. She could never forg- never live that down. And the fact that they bring that up constantly, I think, drives the character, and it makes her a lot more understand relatable they have the correct motivations characterized here yeah that... uh, although very timeline inappropriate okay I, I that's why i wanted to open our discussion with the like factors including the time compression uh and yeah because intermingling of events that did not uh coordinate at all in the the, the actual silmarillion uh, the creative liberties they've taken uh yeah, I still agree that they're slightly off-putting. You know, right. if, if you're if you're a Canaan reader, you know, if if you love the original works of Tolkien, and you've 
put yourself through the grist mill that is the Silmarillion. Yeah, there are some things that are going to throw you off. That having been said, uh, when I thought about it from a creator's perspective, like how would I turn this into something that could be a show? I found my own imagination going very much in the same direction that they have gone here. That like, well, here are the things you would have to do to connect people to this as a show, uh, to make them enjoyable, to make them engaging. So I'm not going to fault them their choices. No, but also Dissa, the uh, female dwarf played by Sophia Namviet, is rather fascinating because it gives us a look at a dwarf we've never seen before. Well, yeah, well, for starters, a female dwarf. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Which, you know, I think the only reference to that was the backhanded quip that Gimli was making in The Lord of the Rings. The beards. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) That... (laughs) Uh, as he was uh, jesting with others, uh, I believe it was with the uh, the Hiram. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was talking to them about Eowyn. Yeah, he was yeah. talking about that. Uh, but, but we get to see Gilgalad, which was one of my big things, and uh, Serenbrar, Brimbar, excuse blah, 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 blah. Yeah, Selim Brimbar uh, by Charles Edwards was a nice uh, touch by me. To myself, I thought that was a really good character uh, pick for the actor as well. And, you know, we've got a couple other characters that yet have to be introduced, but uh, uh, Shadrach the Orc. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we get to, we'll probably get to see, uh, we get to see Durin the Fourth in here and uh, some other characters, as well as. Uh, a new character, Poppy Proudfellow, the uh, the Harfoots. We get to see the proto-halflings as they were wanderers in those days. Yeah, before the, the halflings settled once and for all in the boundaries of the Shire and spread out into many, many branches, we're looking at the protean roots of the halfling people, ah, which has been fun. They have been adorable. I, <laughs> I, I gotta say, and uh, of course, you know, the... Uh, the long-haired person who fell from the stars. Oh, the stranger, yeah. Uh, what are they calling him in the show so far? I believe just the stranger. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Their tall guest. Yeah. Uh, I have enjoyed the heck out of that. Yeah, it's kind of nice that... Is it Gandalf? Is it Radagast? Is it Saruman? Well, we don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, you... You don't know is to see. They're, they're doing a wonderful job playing it. Yes, they are. They're uh, drawing it out. So and... that uh, you don't really know where this person lands. You know, some of their powers are like uh, potentially very dangerous to the people around them. Uh, there are upsides and downsides. Uh, there's benefit and risk in knowing them and being associated with them. It has been fun to watch. And it's a perspective on the concept that I had never given thought to. Okay. I, mm-hmm. Look, I know it's referenced that, like, at this time, this person finally enters the world. And, you know, this is the age in which they begin to have some interactions with mortals. Uh, yeah. Okay. But that's a really bone dry reference. Here, you know, you're basically watching and. Oh, all right, forgive me. I'm going to spoiler this part. Sure. You're watching 
one of the like avatars, so to speak, fall to earth and assume a mortal form and to walk amongst men. Uh, you know, Gandalf, Radagast, Saruman, all of them. They, you know, were of the heavens <laughs> uh, and were placed upon the earth. They were supposed to be guides, but they're also there to learn. Uh, you know, that this is why they accumulated such great wisdom. Uh, so one of them, and, you know, like, who's to say which one? Uh, but one of them is has crash landed and is disoriented and is learning and is discovering an environment around them and figuring out, slowly re reacquiring their ability to metaphysically influence the universe around them, uh, much of which is instinctive rather than, uh, you know, carefully learned. Yeah, we get a lot of looks at, one thing I wanted to mention is we're really getting a lot of looks at Numenor before its fall. Queen Muriel yes. and uh, Elendil, Isildur's father. We get to see the, uh, is it Maxim Baldry plays Isildur, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Yeah, and, you know, just, you're getting to see these characters before they became famous, but <laughs> before Isildur, one of the things that was brought up to me is Peter Jackson's choice. Now, if you remember, uh, we're going to take a sidestep here. One of the things I liked about uh, Peter Jackson's take on Lord of the Rings we got to see Isildur cut the ring from the hand of Sauron and then refuse to destroy it. Yeah, Isildur's bane, thus the term. At, like this is, it's one of the great tragic uh, moment. Yeah, moments in the Lord of the Rings is the the background story of like this was the moment you know like humanity let the world down. Could have been over right there, but it was such a thing of beauty, and it was so easy for it to lodge its way in the heart of a man that like i could use this for good this this is something that like i can do it better surprise as he said i won in the books the isildur grew covetous of it because he felt that he earned it and that's the ring poisoning his thoughts of course yeah the, you earn this the <laughs> quiet self-justifying of whatever it is that you already want yeah. And that's the that's the hubris of the ring, the power that it holds over men, whose hearts are weak, as the elves would later say. Although they were the ones who made it. Uh, yeah, yeah, thanks a lot, elves. <laughs> oh, whoops. Oh, yeah, the way that timer thing creeps up on you, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, thanks, elves, for helping uh, craft the ring of power in, without knowing it, of course. Uh, Sauron, that's his gift, is in secret he forged this uh, while convincing the elves and the others to, hey, this will I'll give nine rings to men. I'll give seven for the dwarf lords and their mountain halls. And I'll give three for the elf kings because you guys are just too cool. How's that? <laughs> I'm not going to mention that there is one other. <laughs> yeah, but without their, without their tools and their aid, he could not have done it. And that's that's the thing, but the the hubris that he invested, his contempt for all other beings above himself or below himself, and he holds Sauron holds himself. Now, I'm super curious as to how they're going to pull this off because, uh, you know, to display it in film, it's going to be tricky. You know, like you you've set up these very antagonistic relationships, and Sauron, you're really going to have to see him in the role of the deceiver. 
how does he sweetly entice these disparate camps into trusting any kind of gift from him at all? How? It just seems almost implausible because of the gulf between anyone who has been associated with Morgoth and, you know, the elves uh, and the dwarves. Like, nobody should be open to this guy to begin with. So I'm, you know, this is the part that has me waiting in trepidation. Like, I want to see how does he do it? Yeah. How does he coax these people into a state of trusting him and receiving gifts from him, uh, collaborating with him on some projects? That, I, I really want to see how it's done. Yeah. And several of the characters, like, let's talk about Bronwyn, some of the new characters that they created. Now, Bronwyn, um, she's a village healer who interacts with Arondir, who is, has a strange fascination with her. Well... And her son, Theo. Yeah, you can't really... Well, well, you know, her son... You can't th- watch somebody who heals other people and think, oh, well, they're just totally beneath notice. They're completely all bad. Uh, you know, it's the counterpoint, the, the reminder that, you know, whatever the elves may aloofly think of humanity... They're obviously people who are struggling to make life better. Okay. Uh, that, that's not a small thing. So I, I like the inclusion of the character and it humanizes, uh, you know, an elf who, you know, once viewed them through aloofness and disregard and all of that, uh, but has started to look upon them as, you know, there are qualities here that are worth protecting. There are things you know, more important than the differences between us. Yeah, and, you know, her son's weird fascination was that Morgoth blade. Yeah, the relic. Oh. They're all, oh boy. That's how you're starting to see it. And the other one is Farazhan, you know, the uh, cousin to Queen uh, Regent Muriel. And, uh, yeah, he, spoiler alert there, uh, yeah, similarly, he's the one who leads them into ruin. So his lust for power knows no bounds. And obviously, that's the way to do it. But yeah, we're getting a really good side view into cultures and characters that we didn't get a lot of time with in either the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit movies. So while some people complain... And there was no way we could have. Oh, absolutely not. You couldn't have given this much background information without bogging the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit down even more. And that they were pretty bogged down. I mean, you know, three episodes just for the Hobbit. uh, And like... Three long movies for the Lord of the Rings, which honestly, you like. I, I still feel like a fourth mer- movie should have been in there at the end. Yeah, and people who know this podcast, let's well, take a sidestep about that. They they know, like previous listeners will know that my anger over only one thing, which was excluding the scouring of the Shire and the important final chapters. Uh, you know, brushing over that uh, was an offense to me. I loved the movies. It did not mean that I didn't, you know, it, it, I, it's not like I won't still watch them. I enjoyed every minute of them, but there were some minutes that weren't there that I feel very strongly should have been. And the loss of them was a critical loss to the quality of the work. I know that he was up against time constraints, but I don't think that was a thing that should have been sacrificed. So, yeah, I, it's still, so well, just... I, I view this with a less biased eye because this is material that is so widespread and so difficult to cohesively transform into one narrative 
that I accepted right from the beginning that they would have to make some editorial alterations. And with that in mind, I think that's where to look at it is that the books still remain. And if your introduction to token lore or this rich world that token created was through the movies, the books are still there waiting for you. And I think as I've noticed that the narrative of the movies and the books is in certain places, starkly contrasting with one another. I think that the books are a much richer and deeper feel for and grasp of the characters in the world. The speeches between or the, the the moments of the characters talking, like Frodo to Aragorn or Gandalf to Sam, are much more pronounced where they were small snippets here and there in the movies. Yeah. That there was a deep respect for what Frodo was doing, the a sadness that Aragorn felt for the bearer of this ring, his bane, his ancestors' doom. Well, like a sense of shame almost. Yes, like shame. I am, you know, I am ashamed that another will have to bear this burden because it's so likely that humanity will be tempted by this. The human in me is as at risk as my ancestor was. And so this poor individual, this kindly, reasonable person who should have just been a gentleman farmer is stuck carrying this nightmare because of me. Yeah, that... You get a much stronger sense of that in the novels. Uh, and also Boromir's, not only, I think that was perfectly captured by Sean Bean, but yeah, I would want to make in the movies, the point I was trying to get to earlier was um, Isildur in the, in the movie, of course, is taken by this ring and he's obsessed and consumed with it. It, it possesses him almost. But there's a weird relationship between the ring and Isildur that is hinted at in the, similar, in, in the right, later writings of Tolkien, that the ring almost respected Isildur. It almost saw him as perhaps a more reasonable and more controllable aspect with the ring above him controlling a puppet rather than being a subordinate to a much more powerful and, well, <clears throat> stronger will than which Isildur ever would possess. <laughs> and so the ring saw it as almost like a, a weird uh, symbiotic. symbiotic relationship that we see with intelligent items in D&D. So we're going to weave a little game lore in that. But yeah. I like that Isildur died by arrows in the back by Jackson's uh, filmography and that Boromir died with arrows in his chest. Uh, you because know. he faced, he realized his mistake in chasing and scaring off Frodo trying to take the ring for himself yeah because let's face it uh, Boromir's temptation was like the the ring got to him through his desire to save his people to unite them to strengthen their kingdom and to bring them back to glory uh, to ward them against the, the south uh, he saw the potential for the salvation of humanity in it. And it just sucked him in. Like, I can save my people with this. I'll just take it. Yeah. And, you know, I need it. I need it more than you. You're not going to really use it for a good purpose. You're not going to fix it. Just lend it to me for a small time. Yeah. I need it just long enough to save my people and be a great hero to them. And then I won't need it anymore. Uh, yeah, it never works out like that. It's the ring, okay? Uh, you know, the wonderful thing. And he died defending uh, Marion Pippin and taking all the arrows. Of course, uh, there's a uh, historical allegory there 
to the uh, um, berserker who held the bridge for Harold Herdrana. Oh, yeah. The berserker reportedly took over two dozen arrows before he dropped. <laughs> Would not let anyone pass. Killed all who came near him <laughs> with his axe. Um, there is, But he took all the arrows in his chest because he had a moment of redemption. Oh, yeah, wonderfully so. You know, he died a hero. And I think that that is where some parts of the film are much more poetic than some, the the visuals are more poetic and moving than some of the uh, text that Tolkien wrote. Not that he was a, Tolkien wasn't an action-oriented writer, but he did have his moments where he definitely tried to portray peril and sword fighting and... Yeah, and this, he was—he did not come up from a background of writing pulp fiction. Okay. I, yeah, know. it said that he uh, read Howard's work and was mightily impressed with uh, his oh, the language. I mean, yeah. with yeah, with the world building. Many and, an erudite man uh, had less knowledge of like ancient history and ancient nations, and uh, he thought know. it a bit tawdry and over the top, but he also liked the. The skill that uh, Howard portrayed of Conan's sword work with brevity, because you know you were limited to your space, and Howard was writing, although he's writing for, for word, he was still limited to a page count. Yeah, like you know, this has got to be twelve hundred words. You know, mini story, just bam, bam. You know, you've got exactly like six pages. So his brevity oh, was a choice of words in, in portraying action. And I think that was what Tolkien was talking about. Now, we can't gainsay. I, I ascribe a lot. But I have spent a lot of time reading Tolkien. And I, while I misspent my uh, scholarly years studying World War II instead of the Similarian, I've started to come to, graps, uh, to grips with the fact that maybe I should have been reading more in the Similarian. But there's no, his, uh, there's no scholarly study that accreditates you properly yet. Yeah, uh, well, hindsight Give it time. 2020. Yeah. But I have I enjoyed... I in Tolkienology. Uh, yeah, just... Sheesh. There's a lot out to be had out there. Thanks, Internet, for bringing up some of the stuff that... Uh, his interviews on the BBC. Oh, yeah. Um, They're wonderful. You know, his uh, radio... Uh, his radio uh, interviews that were done, on, I think, on some of the... Um, uh, later days when uh, he was in his... A dotage, as he uh, termed it, and people were really interested in this book, and he found himself besieged. And he so to reach as many people as he could, he used radio the interviews. Yeah, because this would allow him to like, okay, now I don't have to do two hundred separate interviews. We can just do one really huge one. You know, yeah. just <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. His jest about the eagles is is was freaking legend. Oh. Just shut up. I'll tell you what I tell everybody else. Shut up. <laughs> um, but yeah, we uh, we here at the Dice of Screaming really like Tolkien's work. And, you know, while we're fanboys of it, I we're gushing about this. And I just like how there's some criticism about the pacing. But I think the scope, especially knowing that they're limited to just eight episodes. I mean, that really puts your backs to the wall and trying to get this as much view as they can. And I think we're getting a lot of value for our viewing pleasure. Out yeah, of the, that, that hour. That, that's an hour's worth of entertainment that uh, every episode has been to me. Like, just an hour packed with goodness. So I, I have not been sorry about this one at all. Yeah, I was rather surprised, like, the Numenorians haven't sunk in. And I'm like, 
there's a disconnect here, but that's what you have to do. It's just like with the books and the films. They're different things. They're different vehicles. Well, yeah. I mean, Jackson, like as we mentioned back in the beginning, uh, you know, this is material that required a lot of editing. Uh, the actual Lord of the Rings was a linear tale within a very well-contained period of time. Uh, and Jackson, I, I admit, had a far easier time preparing an adaption for the film uh, without having to sacrifice much. Yeah, they were originally just going to do two movies. I would never have, like, I honestly, until I heard The Rings of Power was being made, I didn't think a thing like this could be made. I thought it was like too much sacrifice would have to be made. Uh, the adaptions would be too radical. And I thought, honestly, like the, the critical part of me thought the adaptions they would make would ultimately wind up being so displeasing to me that I wouldn't enjoy it. I was wrong, categorically. I, you know, I, I understand the motivation behind the changes they had to make, but they did the thing that was most important, which is they engage viewers. They connect you to characters. They vest you in the story. And that is the part that I didn't think could be done. And indeed, they have done it. They have made a portion of the Silmarillion exciting and fun. And frankly, it's got me waiting for the next episode. Yeah, I'm intrigued to see where the second season is going to lead us. So, yes, we don't know who the stranger is. It could be. It could be Sauron, but I'm... I'm the, we're going to do a spoiler here. This one, one where we're going to just drift off. I'm going to put myself out there. I think it's Gandalf. And I think uh, Mike and I have both talked about this uh, previously. The reason why Gandalf's love, why we think this is Gandalf's love for the Halflings. Yeah. These are the people who first. If they, you like it, they're creating a background where like this is Gandalf's like crash to earth moment. You know, he has been sent down from the heavens to work amongst mortals to be a watcher and a caretaker and a guide and shepherd to the mortal world. Uh, and his first encounter is with halflings who treat him with kindness. Uh, admittedly, you know, like some fear, awe, things like that, but, but with kindness. And so forever after, you know, like this forges a character who you're know, like, oh, you know, I'll go back and visit the halflings. But well, anything's possible it. with this series, so I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm not going to bet the farm on that yet. And I like that. I like that I don't know what's going to happen. Even though I'm heavily invested in this lore, I don't know what's going to happen. And isn't that fascinating? Yeah, I like that I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, that <laughs> That is a nice... If it were all literally according to the script, uh, you know, and they just did like long sequences where it's just narration with some vague imagery, CGI stuff in the background to speed through like, okay, and during this thousand years, this happened. That's kind of what I thought would happen with a show mm. that embraced the Silmarillion. That's how I envisioned mm. it. And I, I admit, like, the way I envisioned it, I thought my, even myself, I was like, uh, it doesn't seem like it's really that enjoyable. I mean, it's you know, interesting. Yeah. Like, and that, that's what's it's made got a niche market. That's what brung me into it is that I looked at, and I just like the scope for the time it is. And the fact that there doesn't seem to be any expense past. I mean, we see ships, we see different areas of the world. 
it doesn't seem to be con like, okay, we had to make some uh, cuts in the budget here so we could get all this on camera. I mean, this is one of the most expensive TV productions ever done. Yeah, I mean, they're right up there with the, uh, you know, the, the folks who did the original uh, Game of Thrones. You know, they're they're putting their backs into this. I mean, and of course, Jackson's original productions of The Lord of the Rings uh, were no slouches. Okay, they, you know, they they put their money where their mouth was for that, and they have for this too. So you're getting quality, uh, enjoying the heck out of it. Well, we should take a moment and yeah. Well, well, well I think that wraps it up for us. Let's get a little cup of coffee. Yeah, let's get a little cup of coffee. We've been sitting here just mildly chatting and babbling. Wild gamer uh, cafe. Yeah, let's just go back to you know. Uh, There's the, some beatniks here with uh, berets and like you know. They're, yeah, some. We're little... gonna play a boombox later. Oh yeah. 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 So yeah, let's get a cup of coffee and go to the RPG cafe corner, and. This was a hard one. We uh, we wanted to have been wanting to do a podcast featuring the women of fantasy, and that includes uh, game designers as well as authors. But here's one that uh, well, we had to push a little ahead of that time. So let's take a look at this. This is called the Black God's Kiss RPG box set, and this is on Kickstarter right now, and it's uh, it's already funded. It's ready to wrap up here shortly. And uh, you can still get on board this. And what does it contain? Well, it's about C.O. Moore's character, Jarell of Jory. And this is, uh, although she's, as it says here in the blurb, although C.O. Moore is often overshadowed by those ubiquitous names of the genre, Lovecraft, Howard, Merritt, and Lieber, Moore proved not only to be one of the most prolific fantasy writers of her generation, but a stylist of the highest form. She gave us sword and sorcery's first female protagonist, Jarell of Jory. And Black God's Kiss introduces a Jirel, who is no bikini-armored barbarian, but a warrior of her faith, willing to give up her soul to save her kingdom. And she must travel to the depths of a hellish dimension to accept the accursed boon from a dark god. And, uh, yeah, you can see in there that the dark gothic motifs of doom and oh, sacrifice are quite resplendent here. The Cthuloid horror... Uh, yeah, and, you know, for a terrible squatting thing that wants your inhumanity in exchange for a kiss. C.L. Moore is one of those forgotten jewels that, like, you literally, this is a name you just almost never hear, and it's an absolute tragedy. So this game uh, is really pulling uh, to bring to the forefront something that, like, I hope this just is causing thousands of people to to read C.L. Moore. Yes. Because uh, that's essential reading for the time period. He was a contemporary of Howard. Uh, as I understand it, they did correspond several times, and he truly liked her magnificently dark atmosphere that she crafted. Yeah, you can tell that like the influences were much the same. He was not a hapless damsel needing to be saved. She could save herself. But what the fact that she had to exchange her humanity yeah, her soul. humanity is gone uh, in, in in exchange for the ability to get the job done, uh, whatever it takes. But it, this was the golden era of pulp horror, fantasy, supernatural fiction, all exploding at that time. And C.L. Moore is central to that. Now, Black God's Kiss, what a bundle. Okay, the... the, the $59 uh, in all in sort of thing. It goes higher. But that gives you a slip box with the RPG source book for 5th edition and old school essentials, along with the original short story, 
uh, two modules, Escape from the Keep and the Black God Shadow, along with a mini game. Now you can upgrade to further stuff. You can get a resin model of the Black God itself, uh, some pawns and a T-shirt, as well as a poster map and custom screen. dice. Custom dice. Yep, yep. And that's uh, no gamer hates that. Oh yeah, nobody hates what that. dice. Oh no. So old school essentials is perp is is well loved here, and uh, fifth edition is of course a great game. So that's. That's great that they noticed uh, they got on board for both they of those. Very thoughtfully prepared this in a way that would allow people to intersect with the systems that they're most comfortable playing with. Uh, so that was smart on their part. Uh, but yeah, this is Blazing Worlds Presents. Yeah, and uh, it finishes up in October. So you got a few days left here, and it promises to ship out in July next year. So. There's still plenty of time to get on board on that one, and we'll have a link up on our uh, Facebook page. And, uh, you know, it's, it's always good to put eyes. 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 Why do I feel like something is staring at me? I can't shake the feeling that I'm being watched. It's haunting. I don't know. It's unnerving. I, I, don't, I don't like that. Well, but anyway, they say here to succeed, you must not only confront the black god, but the darkest recesses of your own oh, shadow, shadow self. self. Very union. Yeah. The animus versus the shadow self. Hmm. Yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, if you're out looking for a new way to express your old school love, as well as get into some of the forgotten unsung heroes of our elder days, of our origins. I mean, Appendix N, it was said that uh, it was uh, left out was, was, as a crime. But uh, she was in the uh, basic expert guide as inspiration material. But, uh, you know, Moore was presented with a number of awards later in her life and posthumously. And, you know, it's good to see that she gets some due. So, yeah, I'm actually pretty happy about this because, uh, you know, if, if, for those who know of my unabashed gratefulness to Mary Shelley, um, <laughs> which, by the way, I, I was re-examining that game, uh, Lord By or was it uh, Trapped in Lord Byron's Cabin? <laughs> you know, you're trying to write a you you play it, it's a one page game where you're just trying to write a masterpiece. You're trying to create a a masterpiece work, uh, and you and your spouse are at Lord Byron's like castle or retreat uh, in his manner uh, for a rest so that you will have the time to do this. And then there are three factors, which is the stressors placed upon you by hanging out with a maniac like Lord Byron, <laughs> uh, the moments of incredible inspiration that move your project forward, and the potential scandals caused by like being associated with his inappropriate behavior. So if, if either the scandal goes too far before your masterpiece is complete, then your reputation is ruined and you know, like you've lost. Uh, or if the stressors grow too great, yeah, uh, you snap and kill him for being such a jackass. Uh, and again, you know, your masterpiece is never going to happen. But your goal is to be the person in the, the group who successfully gets enough masterpiece points completed to finish your masterwork that is a new genre-defining uh, yeah. work of supernatural fiction uh, that you have managed to create despite having been hampered by hanging out with a crazy person. <laughs> and 
the the list of things that like show up as Byron adding stresses to your life. You know? um, for instance, uh, Byron brings his pet bear. <laughs> what? It is not trained. It is not trained. Okay. <laughs> uh, or you know, Byron is uh, upset because he has just broken up with his latest boyfriend and or girlfriend. Uh, you know, add one stressor point. Uh, <laughs> hey, he's going to be hell to deal with. But yeah, he's, also he's like a squid. He's all hands. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, since I'm a big fan of Lord Byron, that that was a big hit with me. But <laughs> as a big fan of Mary Shelley. Uh, C.L. Moore is another one of those people who, there you are only like at the dawn of the glorious era of Pulp Fiction, and there she is, a forgotten piece of excellence that I, I feel like people have not gotten enough opportunity or exposure to her. So, Well, yeah, but the fact that it's got over $100,000 of its original $35,000 uh, funding goal. Yeah, it tells you that the themes resonated well with people. This like is the, the and, and the fact that there. it's made for not only fifth edition but old school essentials. Oh yeah, states that uh, we're in a good, pretty good place for the old school feel. It's got, you know, like I, I don't even want to use old school feel because I mean it. It doesn't. Uh, it clearly has <laughs> a, a genre placement that isn't quite in line with Cthulhu. Uh, it's closer to Robert E. Howard's writing in many ways, mm -hmm. the, the, like an ancient world of combat and uh, high risk and, you know, terrible jeopardy. Uh, well, Jarell is in a, her kingdom is kind of a pseudo France. Yeah. Uh, places it in a slightly different percept you know, uh, perceived, you know, technological era. Uh, it's very unique there. I don't know how to classically compare it to anything, which, yeah. Kudos to her for that much originality, but people connect to it because, man, they're well funded. This one, you know, I'm saying this is yeah, this is totally you know, going to happen. You know, it's it it just speaks a lot to the fact that uh, some of the stuff that you discover from old school material still resonates today, and I think that's just the way it's going to be. Um, everybody talks about oh, you know, the OSR is going to die out, and you know. If it doesn't destroy itself with this, um, <laughs> its own buffoonery, I think it'll be just fine. But uh, those guys will pass. Stuff like this. Yeah, the bad remains. actors come and go. Uh, but the process of inspiration, yeah, and, like the the intersection of you know, like many different sources coming together and inspiring people to hair off and you know create, create, create uh, in their own vein. You know, the fusions of this and that. You know, we're we're looking at the same potential that brought us the the golden era that gave us like uh, mashups like Shadowrun, yeah, <laughs> or Paranoia. You know, mm -hmm. just where <laughs> it's <laughs> Kafka meets. <laughs> uh, no, um, yeah, these were things that were powerful influences to us uh, in that era. When those games came out and we saw these genre mashups, we were excited. Uh, and I'm hoping that that's on the cusp of happening again. And this game looks like the kind of thing. Yeah, it's got a mini game, a role-playing game, and several scenarios. I mean, what's not to love? All right, well. And that, a good creative builds on it. Absolutely. So we hope you enjoyed our little take on 
Rings of Power, we're certain we're going to hear about it. So uh, don't be shy. Just uh, let us know whether you agree, disliked it, or hey, even if uh, you loved it, just uh, let us know what you think. We're always here. Yeah, so be specific. You know, yeah, I mean, let us know. Don't be shy. But I think I'll do it for you. So until next time, may the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya. <laughs>